Engaging Leader, Episode 41, How to Use People Analytics to Improve Productivity and Happiness, with Ben Weber from Sociometric Solutions. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. Google recently moved into the number three position among the most valuable firms in the world. Google has been said to have the world's only truly data-driven HR function, and they call it people analytics. One of the data-driven tools that Google uses is social sensing technology. This is a technology that's showing conclusive evidence that slight changes in behavior, from changing when you take breaks to what lunch tables you sit at, can make you and your team happier, healthier, and more productive. To help us learn some of these lessons, our guest is Ben Weber, author of the book People Analytics, How Social Sensing Technology Will Transform Business and What It Tells Us About the Future of Work. Ben is a visiting scientist at the MIT Media Lab, and he is president and CEO of Sociometric Solutions, a management services firm that uses social sensing technology. Before I jump into the interview, I want to ask for your patience with a microphone issue we had. You'll hear the microphone that Ben is wearing make some scratching and bumping noises from time to time. We did our best to adjust that, but you can still hear it occasionally. Ben, before we jump into things we can learn from this specific technology, will you help us understand the broader field of people analytics? So as I talk about in the book, people analytics is, it, it's not a new thing. You know, people analytics is fundamentally about trying to use data to understand um, the people that you work with, right? And to understand the environment around you. Now, the data we used to use uh, for people analytics, it, well, originally it was just pure human observation. You know, you'd see things, you'd see people behaving in certain ways or interacting in certain ways. And based on those observations, you would change your behavior, change the way the organization ran, those sort of things. You know, then, then we started to get a little bit more sophisticated. We started to use uh, surveys, right? So you started to ask people specific questions um, about what was going on. And then based on those answers, you would change the way, again, the company worked. But it's, it's, been, it's been very, very recently that this whole area has undergone really a fundamental change. And it starts um, really with the advent of email. You know, what's interesting is you think of email and you think of all the, the digital tools we have at our disposal um, as, as tools, right? And you use email to communicate. You use a computer uh, to write reports or do other things. But what they're also doing is generating a lot of data. So they're generating data about who actually communicates with whom, uh, when they do it, how they do it. Uh, you have, you know, instant messaging data, phone call data. Um, so all of a sudden, you have a digital record an objective record of what's going on in, in the digital world, right? And over the last couple of decades, people have, have started to, uh, to mine that data mm-hmm. to try to come up with really interesting ways to, to think about how to manage and organize people. 
And if you look at companies like Google and Google's HR department um, isn't called HR, it's called People Analytics, and they do a lot of this. They do a ton of internal email mining, internal uh, instant messaging mining to really look at how are people actually collaborating in the workplace. But you know, the, the important part about this is that it's missing a huge part of the puzzle, which is what's actually happening in the physical world, in the real world. Right, because if I send you an email and we have a, a conversation through email, that's missing all the parts of my personality and your personality that are going on around that. And I probably have maybe even more important relationships that have nothing to do with email. Well, and that's sort of the point. It's not that, well, first of all, you use email for certain things that you don't, you know, and use face-to-face for certain things. So if you want to talk, for example, um, you know, about something more personal, uh, maybe you just want to talk about, uh, you know, your, your kid's birthday this past weekend, right? You're probably not going to send an email having conversation around that. Maybe you'll do it over IM, um, but odds are you're going to do that face-to-face. But you also do this very complicated stuff face-to-face. If you wanted to have a debate, for example, about you know, what the, the company's R&D budget should be for this next year, you, know, it, you could do that over email, but you know, you'd spend hours composing the email, thinking about it, then the other person would have to spend a similar amount of time thinking about it, then writing a reply, and, and the whole discussion would take weeks before it would get resolved, whereas you know, most people have those kinds of conversations face-to-face because we can, again, in real time respond to, to subtle cues in terms of facial expressions, tone of voice. And if you look at you know, big decisions and big discussions that companies have, the majority of them, the vast majority of them, happen face-to-face. You don't really see many uh, corporate mergers happen over email. Right? You'll get the CEOs will come together, they'll have meetings, they'll go out for beers afterwards. And, and those are the interactions, again, if you look at the data, that are most important for driving productivity, job satisfaction, creativity, all the things we really care about. So what do you do about that? You're not going to necessarily record all those conversations and try to analyze what people are saying and talking about. So what can you do? What's interesting is we already have a lot of sensors at our disposal that are actually measuring this physical stuff that we're talking about. So, you know, when you think about it, you when you go into work, there's a few sensors that you've got on you all the time. Uh, the first one is your cell phone, which is in your pocket. Um, might be your personal cell phone, but your cell phone does have a lot of sensors that can tell you who's around you, how you're moving around. It, it has a microphone, but because it's in your in your pocket it can really only do limited things in terms of detecting who you're actually talking to. You know, over a three-month period, I can actually figure out who your friends are, but it turns out that that's not very predictive of, you know, again, how productive you are, how happy you are. I really need to know who you're talking to for that. But we have this other sensor that we wear all the time, and that's actually your company ID card. And you know, most company ID cards today, you, know, you use them to tap into a door, right? So they have a little RFID chip in it, and that's a little radio. It's a sensor. If you put little RFID readers on the ceiling, you could actually figure out where people are. But, you know, besides being creepy, right, just location <laughs> doesn't tell you a lot about, it, you know, how productive people are and how happy they are. You, again, need to understand who's talking to who. And what we've done is created 
uh, essentially the next generation ID badge, which has a number of sensors in it, which again, they don't record what you say and they don't actually have your name attached to the data, but they're looking at who talks to who and, and how people talk to each other. You know, looking at your tone of voice, your volume modulation, how quickly you speak. You know, it turns out that those features are extremely predictive of outcomes that we care about in terms of how persuasive you are, how interested you are in a conversation, how happy you are, how stressed you are. And one of the ways to think about these features is imagine watching a foreign film and turning off the subtitles. So you don't know what people are talking about, but you get the sense that this guy doesn't like this guy, these people are having <laughs> a heated discussion. And, and that's what we're picking up on. Hmm. You know, not to mention the fact that the computers are very bad at recognizing content, especially when you don't know the context. And, and we've been able to show that with this kind of data, uh, we can do pretty amazing things. If a company is measuring this kind of information, what good can that be used for? There, there's actually a lot of things you can do with this data. And I think importantly, when, when we work with companies and, and uh, just sort of our um, ethos around this data is that companies don't really have a good business case to look at individual data. Y you know, what they really should care about is what are the things that make people productive? What are the things that make people happy? How can I change the company so that we're collaborating in a, way, in a way that we think is effective and so that everyone's happier at work? And, you know, nowhere in that equation is there anything actually about the individual. We give individual access to their own data, but that's something that's their property and the company actually has no rights to that data. So there, there's sort of an interesting distinction there, but what you can do with this data is really understand what are the actual drivers of success at your company. And it's something that's sort of weird to think about. So the way that we traditionally manage collaboration, which fundamentally companies are about collaboration, you're bringing people together who, you know, when they're working with each other, can do things that they couldn't do by themselves. And the way we typically measure, you know, manage collaboration is through org charts and through formal processes. You know, in an org chart, you'll say, Okay, well, if you need to talk to somebody, we're going to draw a line on the org chart. So this is your boss. These are the people who work for you. And that's how we're going to try to manage collaboration. The issue is that the kind of work we do today has just gotten so much more complex than it was even a couple decades ago. And the ability to manage that complexity and the increasing need for, for very diverse collaboration through an org chart is just extremely difficult and essentially impossible. What you can do with the sort of data that we're collecting now and the sort of analyses we're doing is really see, first of all, what is the actual org chart? How are people actually collaborating? Mm. And then you can actually understand how can you change that? What are the ways that people collaborate that it's actually most effective? So, you know, for example, it might be something where, you know, hardware engineers, right? You know, you might have an intuition that hardware engineers, you know what, they're, they're working on these very individual tasks and it really only makes sense uh, for them to talk to their, their boss. They shouldn't really be talking too much to each other. But that's just an intuition. The, the issue is that, you know, while intuition is sometimes right, it is also very often wrong. And if you look at a lot of the problems we have in business today, it tends to be because we rely too much on, on intuition. What you can do with this data is test that. You can look at the data and say, you know what, really what collaboration patterns do make people effective? And maybe it is what you thought it, it would be, but it could also be something very different, or it could be something you had no intuition about. So you're sort of uncovering 
capturing this this hidden side of work that just there was no way to actually look at this stuff before. Hmm. Now, one thing that I'm confused by, so you're saying that the individual data is not really tied to anybody, but then or I'm saying that the, that's not available to the company. I, I suppose it's available to you as the, the as the third party analyst. So you are able to say, all right, we're measuring these teams, and this team here is interacting more, and and their performance is better. Uh, otherwise, how how do you even say what's the long term value of whether they're interacting or not interacting? Yeah, that's right. We we do have access to to individual data. Although actually, it's important that. Their name is not directly in our database. There's a process that we go through, which is partly manual, to actually connect up, for example, individual productivity data to the behavioral data we collect. Companies do get to look at team-level data. If it's aggregated, then you can't identify a specific individual. And then we do give organizations and and, uh, individuals and, and teams themselves access to that kind of data. So we're sort of very careful in terms of when you aggregate something. Whenever you show data about how people are behaving. You just have to make sure there's enough people included in those statistics so that you couldn't say, you know, okay, this is Bob, right? That no one should be able to know that except for the person themselves. Now, at the companies where you're doing one of these studies, the employees are aware of what's going on. You're not monitoring people without their knowledge. Do they find this creepy or intrusive? Well, an important thing to actually mention is that we do this at an opt-in basis. And in the last year, whenever we've rolled out badges, we've gotten over 90% participation in every project we've done. Um, and I think one reason that, that we get that kind of um, buy-in is I think there's, there's two big reasons. One is just the whole rollout process that we have. When, you know, it, to, to your point, if I just went into a company and I pulled out these badges and I just said, here, wear this. Right. I, mean, I don't think I, I would participate. I don't know anyone who would participate under those circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the key is to be really transparent about what data we collect. And, and what we do is we go into companies. We, we send out material basically showing, all right, previous results that we've collected. We show the actual database tables of what we collect, right? And, we, and then the second step here is not just sort of showing people what we do, what we collect, um, but we give people consent forms. So this is the opt-in part. Where, again, we, we sign the consent form along with the participants. It says, you know, we will not share your individual data with the company. Um, and actually, in the, the contracts that we have with, um, with our clients, um, they sign away all rights to individual data. Um, there's, some, there's actually huge privacy issues in the U.S. Uh, companies could technically um, own this data. Um, just, you know, legally, if we didn't have this agreement, a company could... Um, look at individual data. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's something that just has to change in terms of privacy law in the U.S. Uh, but until it does, we are providing those guarantees. Um, and I think the other really important thing that participants see is really the potential value in this kind of data and this analysis. So, you know, when we worked with a uh, you know, Bank of America and their call center operation, for example, you know, these, these call center employees, they've really been managed one way for the past 50 years, since, since the inception of call centers, which is, you, you know, when you had, um, it, when you're on, you're on a team of about 20 people, and if any one person on your team is on a break, then no one else is on a break. And the reason was that, again, in the, in the 60s, if you might have only had 100 people on a call center, 
So if 20 people took a break at once, it would actually be very hard to handle the calls coming in. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, we know today, you know, call centers have thousands of employees, but that's just the way they've been doing things. So they, they've kept doing it that way. But these employees realize that, you know what, occasionally my lunch break overlaps with the people that I work with. And that's, that's really great 15 minutes when I'm just able to vent a little bit and have some conversations around that. But, you know, whenever they would bring that up to management, they'd say, well, you know, whatever, that's, we don't do it that way. And there was really no way for them to show that this was actually an important part of their day, that this is something that needed to change. But with the data that we collect, all of a sudden now, you can demonstrate the value of those sort of activities. The idea that you could actually ask the question, how much money does the company make when two employees eat lunch together? You can actually start to make those calculations. There, there is no way to do that before. But really demonstrating you know, how important even informal interactions are and how much they contribute not just to your own job satisfaction, but to actually the output, to the productivity of the entire company. It's something that most people see the value in that. They want to, to help the people they work with. And they see this as a very concrete, um, you know, important step towards making that happen. Can you give us another example of a change that a company has made after going through one of these projects? One of the, the companies we worked with was sort of configuring these multi-million dollar hardware systems uh, for customers. So these are servers, data server systems, and they had hundreds of these engineers who would physically configure the the systems. And most of these people have master's degrees, but they were paid based on how quickly they could turn around these configurations. So what would happen is a salesperson would call them up and say, hey, I've got company X, and, and they need a server that does X, Y, and Z. So these engineers had to figure out actually, all right, to do these things, what sort of a system would you need? How do I put it together? It, you know, how do I price it out? All, all these things. And it, you know, a simple one could take five minutes, but a complicated one could take eight hours. What was interesting was that people were paid, what, their bonus was determined based on their individual performance. So it was, it was determined based on how many of these tasks they could turn around. What was interesting, though, was that they had their, the resumes of the people, so they knew you know, how much education, how much experience they had. And when they looked at that, they saw that you know, the, the people who were the most experienced, they weren't necessarily the most productive. And, and they couldn't really figure out what was going on. So we, we went in with the badges, and we actually looked at how are these people collaborating. But importantly, we were actually able to look at who did they talk to when they were working on one of these tasks, because we, we knew exactly when they started it, we knew exactly when they ended it. And what you saw was very interesting. There was sort of this network of people who you would go to uh, when you work on a task. And there were sort of four people at the center of this network. And what was amazing was that if you talked to one of those four people at the center, you completed the task you were working on in about a third of the time that you would expect. One reason this is extremely surprising is that from the company's perspective, if you were spending your time talking to somebody else, then you were essentially wasting your time, was the view, because you should just be working on your task, mm-hmm. right? But, but what the data is showing is that you're going to people to get advice. It, again, makes sense. It, it, it's very intuitive. And if you ask people, they're like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I didn't know how to do this one thing. So I knew that, that this guy over here, he, he knew how to do that and he helped me out. Okay, makes a lot of sense. But then when you look at the individual output 
of these engineers, what you saw was that um, they were really middle of the road, that these experts were not significantly different from average, you know, because they were spending so much of their time helping the people they worked with. But obviously, this is a really big problem, because what that means is that the people who are actually contributing most to the overall output of the company are being compensated, you know, no more than just your middle of the road engineer. Very surprising, something where we actually help them change the way that they compensate employees based on this data. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I think back to some experiences in life at work, and I think of either myself or some of the other people who were really well known as great problem solvers. And a lot of the time could get taken up by coworkers. As your reputation grows as a great problem solver, they come to you with their problems and get you to solve them, which of course you're happy to do because you want to help people. But then in the long run, it can hurt your own opportunities for advancement and compensation because you're spending so much of your time on other people's priorities. And of course you want to be a good citizen and be helpful to people, but you sort of have to balance that out too. Right. And I think that's a very important point. What I would argue, it's interesting when you think about interruptions, most of us think we we hear interruptions and we think bad. interruptions are bad. (laughs) And, you know, again, obviously there's a certain point where if you're at your desk and someone comes over and says, hey, you know, I got a bunch of cat videos to watch. Why don't we watch them (laughs) together? Maybe that's not the most effective use of your time. Although there is probably some social bonding that occurs there that, that is potentially important, probably not incredibly important. Um, around cat videos. But, you know, the important thing is that if you spend five minutes of the day helping make a person that you work with, let's say, 5% more effective, well, that's actually a huge boost to them, right? And even if you're getting interrupted all the time and your own individual output suffers, then that really should be your job. You know, if you can spend your entire day and make 20 people 10% more effective, then you should be doing that. That's what you should be doing, right? Now, the issue is, is like you brought up, is that we're not compensated that way, mm-hmm. right? Is that we're not evaluated based on how much we help other people. And, and one big reason is that you just couldn't measure that before. I couldn't show how much my interactions with other people really helped them. And with this kind of data, you can start to do that. One of the reasons is, especially in, in, uh, in the U.S. and in the West in general, we have this real bias towards... Thinking of productivity as individual, you know, you like to point to your inbox and say, look, I finished all these emails today. Or you point to a stack of papers and say, look, I wrote that report. And that that means you're productive. Mm -hmm. Whereas interactions with other people, having conversations with other people, you can't point to that. So, you know, that doesn't matter. But the data clearly shows, you know, that, you know, again, and what's important, what's ultimately important isn't your own individual output. It's what the whole group outputs. And when you actually look at what groups produce and and the end result that the people in the outside world see, the people outside the organization see, the stuff that predicts those results is all about uh, communication patterns. It's all about collaboration. And what, what we should start to do is not only value that more, you know, sort of just qualitatively, but quantitatively measure that and start compensating people actually based on that data. That, that is fascinating. Now, so far we've been talking about how organizations from a, a large organizational structure level 
can use people analytics to improve. But let's talk a little bit about the individual contributor or a manager, what they can learn from the things that you've been discovering. For example, you have a chapter in your book that says, should I stay home and work in my pajamas? And how do you answer questions like that? It's funny when you think about, for example, like remote working and, and telework, right? There's a lot of qualitative sort of just, uh, just articles out there um, and pundits talking about this, about, you know, why flexibility is good or why, or, you know, or why people should always be in the office because collaboration is so important. And, and whenever I hear arguments like that, um, that are just based on anecdotes, I, 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 really get, I really get annoyed and just say, all right, listen, we actually have data on this. Let's look at what the data says is relevant. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is, you know, first of all, there's a big difference um, for people who have been following, um, again, a couple months ago, um, <laughs> Yahoo had this whole, um, this whole big, big thing come up when they decided that they were going to no longer let people only uh, work from home, right. that they actually had to come into the office. Right? And there's a big, big debate about that, about flexibility and it being fair to parents and everything like that. But the real question is, what did that decision actually mean in terms of job satisfaction, in terms of retention, and in terms of productivity? What did that decision actually mean? We can argue around you know, what the appropriate trade-off is, but we need to understand quantitatively what is the trade-off. So, for example, when you're trying to decide, you know, whether you should work from home or go into the office, I mean, there's, there's a big difference between never seeing the people you work with and working from home a couple days a month. The data is quite clear that working from home a couple days a month, it's not going to adversely impact your productivity. And importantly, if you have something stressful to take care of, say your kid is sick or maybe your, your, your sibling is getting married and you have to, you know, prep a few things before the wedding. If you don't do that stuff, if you don't take care of it, you're going to be extremely stressed at work, you're not going to be very effective, and you're going to like your job a lot less, right? So data, again, very clear that, that's, that that makes a lot of sense. It's when you start, you know, staying home three days a week, four days a week, never coming into the office, you start to see some really negative effects. We looked at, um, along with IBM, at, at a bunch of programmers, some of which were co-located in the same office and some of whom were remote. And what you did is you looked at, first of all, whose code depended on whose code, right? And what's interesting is that, you know, it turns out some people think that programming is a very individual task and that, you know, the programmer is the guy who sits in the corner drinking Mountain Dew and, and typing on the computer all day. And actually, it's, it, it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, programming is something that's extremely collaborative, mostly because your code depends on the code of thousands of other people. And if you actually don't talk to those people, to the people who write the code that you use, that's where the bugs pop up. It's about 12 times more likely that a bug will, will occur if you don't talk to a person whose code um, your code depends on. So what we did is what we said is well, let's look at actually um, who's talking to who, whether they're co-located or remote. And we're not even going to look at face-to-face. We're just going to look at electronic communication um, about these dependencies. And we're going to see, you know, how, mu- how much of the time do you satisfy these dependencies when people are co-located? And how much of the time does that happen when people are working remotely? What was amazing was that if you look at co-located groups, again, using a very low bar, we look if people communicated once about a dependency. 
about 55% of the time when you're co-located, people communicate once. That changes to about 45% when people are remote. Now, what's important to note is that when you don't have this communication, it takes you 32% longer to complete code. So if you back that out, in Yahoo's case, this means that if you look at their average productivity and their output, that they will save, just, just based on that very conservative analysis, about $150 million a year by having people come into the office. It's, it's a huge effect. Actually, there, there's even more there. And if you look at the average number of communications about a dependency, uh, people who are remote only communicate on average about eight times. People who are co-located uh, communicate on average about 33 times. Again, digitally, not even looking face-to-face. So what this says, there's a few things it says. First of all, for various projects, we have to be remote. Again, if you start a project in India, you need somebody in India on the ground. Great study out of University of Michigan showed that when you have people who are remote, that at the beginning of a project, you know, flying people together to meet face-to-face uh, made those teams perform significantly better than teams that never met face-to-face. And there's diminishing returns to this. But the idea that something as simple as if you have a team where some people are, are remote, you know, getting everyone together, you know, a couple times a year and just make just letting people get to know each other, even just in a social context, that that's extremely important. You know, I, I think the important way to think about it is you don't miss the meetings. You still have the meetings. I mean, despite the fact that uh, for those of us who've been in teleconferences with more than a couple people, you know how ineffective those are. <laughs> but, you know, it's something where letting people get to know each other, going out, going out for a beer, uh, you know, after the meeting or having dinner, those interactions are extremely important to help you get a sense for the people that you're working with. And then when you find yourself remote or when you find yourself trying to figure out, well, do I want to make the drive into work today? Uh, maybe I'll just work from home. And, you know, if traffic's really bad, if it's going to take you four hours to commute in, I mean, I mean again, there, there's limits to this sort of stuff. But trying to think about this less as individual output and more as group output will probably change your perspective on this. Because what's missing, right, when people are, you know, remote isn't your individual stuff. It's all these interactions that you have with other people, which makes everybody a lot happier and more effective. It's interesting because that almost flies in the face of so many trends today where teams are more decentralized, they're virtual, they may interact all day long, but they don't see each other for months at a time. So for example, let's say I'm a manager of a team and one of my employees comes to me and says, hey, I'd like to start working from home one day every week or two days every week. And of course, every situation is different, but you would you would say on average that would be a bad idea. It's one thing to say, you know, work at home a couple of days a month if you if you need to, but this weekly business, I'm not going to go along with that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important that there are certainly some roles that are easier to do remotely. I mean, if you're a salesperson, for example, right, and you you meet people outside the office, then it doesn't make make as much sense to pull you into the office every day, right? Mm-hmm. But for I mean, all the stuff we do today, whether it's you know, writing reports, whether it's producing media or, or writing code or, or building cars, uh, building airplanes, you know, managing buildings. These things have gotten much more complex over time. And as a consequence, the need for communication has increased uh, that much more. And that the tools we have at our disposal today are just not very good at supporting those kinds of interactions. And, and so as a manager, when, you, when you're confronted with something like this, you know, obviously there has to be, um, you know, there's some discussion around it. 
Um, it's not like it's a hard and fast rule necessarily, but you really have to acknowledge that if you are going to work from home a couple days a, a week, everybody's going to be a lot less effective. I mean, not just you. It, it's it wouldn't even be a question, I think, if it was just about you as an individual. Because sure, I, if if we can work from home all the time, then probably individually, I can probably produce a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it kneecaps the growth of the entire organization, right? and it it also makes it. I mean, I know from some of my friends who worked at Yahoo, when, when they would come in on a Friday and no one would be there, I mean, it, it's demoralizing, hmm. right? And that's something that we as, as a society have to start valuing, right? And that, you know, in the, for the foreseeable future, that kind of interaction is going to be extremely important. You know, now, may, maybe down the road this changes when we have like holograms and um, I mean, literally, if, if we have holograms and we can completely virtually reproduce physical environments, then, then maybe it doesn't matter as much. But, but until then, it, as humans, we still are, really need this. Now, one thing that seems contrary to me is when I think about people who are either introverted or ambiverted, for example, me, I perform very well if I have maybe half of my time where I'm interacting with people and half of my time where I'm working alone, and that's just where I get my energy. And I think of your example with Yahoo. If I come in on a Friday and and the office is rather quiet because half the people are gone, I inside I think, oh, great, I'm going to get a lot of my quiet work done today, less, less interruptions. But on the other side, if I'm getting so many inter- interruptions throughout my day that I, I don't get any alone time to have that kind of energy flow, it really de-energizes me, and I, I think it may be even harder for true introverts. So how does that factor into this performance discussion? Yeah, I think actually what's interesting is if you look at the data, the things that predict how happy you are at work, the things that predict how productive you and the group are, it's not the raw amount of communication. So it's not just saying that if we sit at the water cooler for um, eight hours a day, <laughs> everyone's going to be more effective, right? It's, it's actually the pattern of communication. Right. So it's, you know, who do you talk to? How do those people talk to each other? How is that situated in the social network of the overall organization? That's the stuff that's really important. Now, what that means is that if you're an introvert, right, maybe you only spend 30 minutes a day talking to other people. That's okay. The question, though, is who do you spend that time talking to? Right. And not just saying that, that more is better, but really saying that you, you have to have the right interactions. And that even if you are an introvert, again, fundamentally, we're, we're in companies, we're, we work in teams because together we can do things that we couldn't do by ourselves. You need to have communication. You need to collaborate with other people. And the extent that you need to do that depends on the type of work you do. And maybe it, it means that some introverts find that a little bit harder. However, I would say that if you look at the data overall, it, it's not really an introvert-extrovert type dichotomy. It's really just are people spending their time effectively? Well, the book is People Analytics, How Social Sensing Technology Will Transform Business and What It Tells Us About the Future of Work. Ben Weber, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thanks for having me. You can follow Ben on Twitter at bweber, that's B-W-A-B-E-R, or visit his company website at sociometricsolutions.com. We'll provide that contact information and a link to Ben's book, and an opportunity for you to ask questions or provide comments at engagingleader.com forward slash 41, as in episode 41. In case you missed it, you may also be interested in episode 35, 
When the research from Ben's colleagues at Sociometric Solutions was part of my conversation with Akeem Nowak about infectious energy. You can connect with me and other listeners on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter, where I am at Jesse Leahy. Speaking of Facebook, thank you to Michael Wood for liking our page. Also, thank you to Akeem Nowak and Todd Henry for the recent reviews written about Engaging Leader in iTunes. For our other listeners, please do us a favor and write a review. We'll direct you to the right spot in iTunes if you go to engagingleader.com forward slash iTunes. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at aspendalecommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about. <laughs>